Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. This week's topic is time, because it's it's in in the the news. news. But first... First, Davis, very important question oh, for yeah, you. Here we go. <laughs> did you write a volcano song? No. <laughs> I was just going to come right and say it. I did not get around to it. I actually kind of forgot. Oh. Um, yeah. I don't, did I promise? I, I, I don't know if I... Um, I think you coerced a yeah, promise you, out of me. You didn't promise, but I promised on your behalf. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get right on it. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'm bring not it cross, up next time, I'm too. not crossing my fingers behind my back. Yeah, I guess the only way... The only way to end this torture is just to do it. Otherwise, I have to answer to it every time. Every episode. <laughs> but we Let's do have some real updates from volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Davis, you uh, posited, but we're not sure... If Olympus Mons on Mars, the big giant volcano on Mars, was a shield volcano or not, what is it? It is a shield volcano, ah. as I learned uh, 10 minutes prior to recording <laughs> this podcast. Um, yeah, so, and there's some, again, it's like one of those things where there's not, uh, we don't have a ton of like conclusive evidence about it. We do know that it's a volcano, it has that kind of shape. You can get like, you can see like photos that were taken up above and it's got a caldera and stuff like that. And there's some belief that it may still be active. Uh, ah. because there's still a little volcanic activity on Mars. But again, it's like one of those things. Like nobody's been there. Nobody knows. It's true. The rovers can't tell. I don't know how far the rovers are from Olympus Mons. I know none of them are particularly close. Ah. And also, like, like a rover in, like, its lifetime can only travel a few miles. <laughs> Tends to, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there cool. you go. It is It is a volcano, a shield volcano. Excellent. And then I had a couple of updates as well from uh, just little questions, things we weren't sure on. So we were wondering about the... Pelian volcano type mm. and I was like is it from Mount Pelee named after that it was one I don't know but it is I was right <laughs> my <laughs> etymology skills were on point so uh from Britannica uh, Pelian eruptions are named for the destructive eruption of Mount Pelee on the Caribbean island of Martinique in 1902 so there you go fact do you remember do you remember like sets of dictionaries uh, I remember seeing them in shows. You mean encyclopedias? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this dictionary is A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> medical dictionaries are kind of like that. But doesn't that happen in a, uh, what's that movie? The basketball movie, White Man Can't Jump? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen oh, that movie. Women something. Yeah. But she uh, she can only buy like one encyclopedia or something. So she buys Q. And then she goes on like Jeopardy, and there's a Q category, and she owns it. That it's a, that's a not the main plot of the movie, but that's what I remembered. <laughs> but anyway, so we have that. So we have Mount Pelee mm-hmm. uh, and the Pelean volcano, and then the other one was where is the Giant's Causeway? And I believe I thought Ireland, and you thought Scotland. I yes. Think. And it is in fact Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. the north coast of Northern Ireland. If you haven't looked that up, the Giant's Causeway, super duper cool, uh, hexagonal. Basalt columns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to be like, fire remnants. <laughs> fire <called>. remnants. It's <laughs> not the topic this week. I forgot everything. Yeah. Uh, and then we we're talking about St. Elmo's fire, which is the uh, effect on planes and stuff that they're flying through, like, really charged clouds, 
where they get like lightning kind of stuff basically mm-hmm. on them. Uh, and it's also called Corona Discharge, yeah. which is less fun than St. Elmo's Fire. No, St. Elmo's Fire is cooler. Yeah. It so. actually took a bit to find that because everyone was just like, yeah, St. Elmo's Fire. And I was like, well, what's <laughs> yeah. the actual name? Because <laughs> it's, it's a pretty accepted like scientific term for it, for coronal discharge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So those were our little updates yeah. on things we didn't quite answer. There's a famous myth associated with the Giant's Causeway because that's like kind of where it gets its name from. It's like some Irish warrior like fought the giant there and when he collapsed, it like destroyed the causeway because it used to connect two land masses, oh. stuff like that. Well, that's what like, this is again yeah. in the myth. So yeah. yeah. But like you could look that up if you're interested. Sure, are you, are you talking to me or, or, or everyone? <laughs> I'm talking. I'm talking to the general audience. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Now you have homework. Yeah. Now we have to. Uh, now we have to explain ourselves and what what we meant by this week's topic. Yes, by time and how time is in the news. <laughs> time is always in the news. <laughs> I was going to say time is the news. <laughs> time is it's the its news. principal purpose to um, tell record keeping of events in true. accordance with time. Yes. segments of time. But in particular, what inspired us here was uh, we're here in Calgary, in Alberta, mm-hmm. and we are having a munis- municipal election right now. We're electing a new mayor. Yeah, as of recording tomorrow, everyone, is the official day to go to the polls. So now you really know how long it takes Davis to edit these. Yeah, this one might come out fast. Who knows? Oh. Maybe I'll regret saying this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so one of the, uh, there's a couple of uh, plebiscites and a referendum on this vote as well. And it's a provincial referendum on daylight savings time. Among an, uh, among other um, silly questions. But daylight savings time is the only one that the province can actually really control. <laughs> uh, and this one was, should Cal- or should Alberta switch to permanent daylight savings time? Which is permanent summer hours. So, yeah. so I've had, I had this discussion <laughs> with Kyle, actually. And he was, <laughs> Hi, Kyle. He, he was very convinced that... Uh, that DST was in the winter because it does because the like the language of it doesn't really yeah. make sense. You would want to save daylight in the winter time, yeah. but that's not really. And as we'll learn, as I, I looked into the history of daylight savings time <laughs> a little bit, there's a reason why. Okay. Yeah, it's got a weird naming convention. Excellent. Yeah. So there we go. We're gonna get into some history of daylight savings time and timekeeping in general. Mm-hmm. Getting into um, yeah how daylight savings time came about. And the effect that it has on humans and involving something called our circadian rhythm. That was really where, like, this sort of started was, yeah. like, the circadian <laughs> rhythm piece. And because there's always been this conversation around daylight savings time of, like, well, if the clock switch, it's so bad for you. And there's always more heart attacks. And, like, it's been this, and we should get a, do away with it. And it's yeah. always been this big thing. Um, and then in my part for research, I started, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll look a little bit into the history of timekeeping uh, just for, like, some, some table setting for this topic. And then I got way way too deep into it yeah and so now we're going to talk a lot about history timekeeping as well yeah but it sort of relates it's an interesting history yes uh i spent a day doing research and i was just like daylight savings time and circadian Circadian rhythm rhythm. and like biological pathways (laughs) and i got excited and then i went and i checked yesterday and it was like there's a giant section on the history of timekeeping okay (laughs) and they used to use these candles and the candles would have markings we'll get into all that yeah yeah, i remember the candle stuff (laughs) there we go so davis Take us away with the history yeah. of timekeeping, mm-hmm. my friend. Mm-hmm. All right. So, as as you were probably uh, pretty well aware, sundial 
was uh, was one of the earliest timekeeping like devices, like tools that were used. So yes. we, people started tracking like the cycles of the moon and the stars like 30,000 years ago. We can see like there's artifacts of like um, the first star chart or map of the constellation Orion. It's found on like a mammoth tusk from cool. like, 30,000 BC. Uh, BCE, I guess, this is the more... Before Common Era. The Common Era, which also just lines up with the old system because <laughs> it was simple because all of our dates were based around it. Uh, and it makes sense, right? Like, you think about it, like, even in your daily life, you kind of, you start, you note the, like, the movement of the, the, the moon, like, the changing of its phases. And, like, mm-hmm. most people, you know, we go through our lives knowing that a moon, uh, like, a moon cycle is close to a month. Yeah. You might know of, like, there's lo- the lunar calendar in, like, China especially it's very popular versus, like, the solar calendar, which is the Julian calendar, which is we what we still use, all those things. So anyway, so we, you know, it makes sense, right? Like we've been kind of monitoring the movement of the the spheres, as it were, for well, a long time. Well, because when the when the when the moon was full, the werewolves would come out. So you had to know about that stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had to really, you had to really keep track. But yeah, and like and just like all these like human human beings throughout all our history very very observational so you just start to make note of all these things so uh but it wouldn't be until like around you know 1500 bce that you we start to see a like a historical an archaeological record so okay. you have no idea like they could have been having sundials for you know tens of thousands of years before that but we just don't have any archaeological evidence so that's our kind of our best guess and so where I really got, where I really got stuck on this and like, I started going down to that, like, just like, oh my God, this is so intricate. And like, there's so much weird history here, um, was that the Babylonians were some of the first to describe some of the mathematics about like how we keep time. Okay. So have you ever, Sarah, have you ever questioned why there are 60 seconds in a minute or 360 degrees in a circle? Uh, only when I was young and I got really annoyed by it because I was like, why doesn't it go to 10? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like most of our arithmetic today is based off of like the Arabic and like Indian mathematics and like those, that's our number system. And it's, most of it is to base 10 today as well because we use like the decimal system. Mm-hmm. And they, a lot of belief that like this historical mathematics around 10 comes from like having 10 fingers and 10 toes. So it's very easy to count to yeah. 10 as an individual human being. That's why like math in school when you're little and you're like, yeah, 10, you get like your twos, your fives, your tens, and it all makes sense. And they're like, here's a clock, it's out of six. And you're like, why is it mm-hmm. out of six? <laughs> so interesting, there is a metric time system. That where it's all to the base 10, but it becomes very complicated. And so this is why 24, right? (laughs) Exactly. So this is why we've never really moved away from it. So 24 or the 12 hours in the day, there's some belief it traces itself back to like ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome. And this idea that those earliest sundials, the earliest ones that have um, any sort of evidence of segmenting the day have 12 segments for the daytime. Obviously sundials are no good at night. So you're dividing the (laughs) night and the day into 12 equal sections. The Romans at one point in time, um, obviously based on the latitude that they were at, started to understand that like in the summer, the days are longer mm-hmm. and in the winter, the days are shorter. So they would just take away the daytime hours. They would just, so you'd have a fluctuating number of hours oh, of the okay. day, basically. Makes sense. Um, so that's sort of where the base 12, the 12 hours in the day, 12 hours at night kind of comes from so 24 it was just like hours as a whole. Trial and error, essentially. Well, and a lot of it has to do with like, you think about this really early mathematics. You don't have any of the complex 
understanding of mathematics that we have today. Like we have all these crazy proofs through calculus that really prove like these fundamental truths about math. And you don't necessarily have a lot of that, but these ancient peoples had a really good understanding of mathematics from like certain perspectives, but they use, a lot of them use different base systems. Yeah. And a lot of these older systems were based off of numbers that had more divisors oh, okay. because they're easier to work with, right? Yeah. So you think about 10, really like you got like two and five, mm -hmm. but you do something like 12, oh. now you have two, three, and four, and right? six. And six. <laughs> well, but because then you're starting to go around, right? Because divide by two, you get six. That's a it's a reciprocal, right? So right. it's, but it's still more divisors, right? So there's some belief that the Sumerians who predate the Babylonians were, the, uh, they came together from two different ancient peoples and they formed the Sumerians. And there's this, uh, in my research, it was sort of said that like, there's some belief that one of the groups used a base five system mm. and the other used a base 12. And when the groups merged, they adopted a base 60 system oh. because it was five times 12. And interestingly, you can actually <laughs> count 60 on your hands. So rather than counting your digits, you use the thumb on your left hand to count the individual knuckles on your fingers. So if you look at your fingers, yep. each of your fingers has three knuckles. Oh. So you could count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And then on your right hand, you would put a finger up for each dozen that you've now counted. Oh. You could go all the way up to five dozens and you get 60. Oh, like counting with like, so you, you count... All your, it's your like tallies, right? So and it's then a, you count the rest, all your knuckles with like your index finger? So no, you use your thumb, you say like, you count 12 on your left hand, yeah. and then you would put your thumb up on your right hand. So now you said, I've counted one dozen. Yeah. And then also, so say you're counting, you know, sacks of grain, and they're all sitting in front of you, and you just count them out, and you go, okay, now I've got one dozen. Mm, and okay. you count another 12, and you go, now I've got two dozen. And you keep going until you get to five dozens, you count another dozen, now you know you have 60, mm. right? Because you've counted six or five dozens and then you could start again and you could make a mark on something and keep going gotcha so 60 then for the babylonian sumerian system because the babylonians later adopted it then became like one essentially so you don't so i was i got i got really deep into this i watched like a 20 30 minute like math lecture on this and like they were talking about how like so basically they would make all these markings but they would only make markings up to 59 because 60 was one. And they oh. sort of had an understanding of zero, but they didn't have a mark for zero. Right, yeah, because when was zero really So understood? zero was in, I don't remember the exact date. I'll have to look that up. I think it's around 200 CE or something in, to that effect. It is an Arabic number. That's where it was invented. I thought it was uh, from well, India. The concept was understood in India. Yeah, era, era, like Arabia, India. Okay. Like, because that our whole system of mathematics is from that area. Yeah. Right, or the current digit system that we use. Look into the history of zero, everyone. It is weird and cool because it had to, yeah. to conceptualize nothing. Like yeah. literally conceptualizing the concept of nothing. Very cool stuff. And it was very important to mathematics. Oh, yeah. Defining zero opened up a lot of like how you understand like all these principles of mathematics and stuff like that. And especially in a base 10 system yeah. where like zero is a primary digit. Yeah. You just don't use it. They, yeah, couldn't describe it in that way before. So same sort of thing, right? So, you, so now you've got this base 60. And then there's all these theories about how you get to like 360 degrees in the circle. But part of it comes from the observation of that, you know, there's roughly 360 days in the year. There's about 355 lunar days 
and there's about 365 solar days in the sol in each calendar. So there's some belief that you get at 360 by meeting in the middle. Sounds like there was a, a lot of our current stuff is based on like compromise of people in the past. <laughs> well, mo it's it's interesting to remember that most of our measurement systems are all relative. Like even mm. Celsius, even the Kelvin scale, right, for temperature, which is generally considered like a more absolute scale and a lot of science will be done in Kelvin because it's more like innate, it's understood as this more constant scale, yeah. it's still related to a relative temperature of absolute zero. And everything is, then you're just using the Celsius gradient for each degree True. from absolute zero. And same thing with the metric system, all of it, right? It's just based around these relationships between different things. So, you know, a milliliter is the same as a centimeter cube, a uh, millimeter cubed, you know, um, yeah. which is, and a milliliter of water is a gram and sort of right. so on and so forth. Or if you go like even back, I mean, if you look at England and imperial system and like the the weight of a stone, right? Like mm -hmm. people will be like, I'm four stone. And I, we were here, we're like, what? I think it's, a stone is like 12 pounds. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a certain number of kilos. Like it's 15 kilos or 20 kilos or something like that. Oh, yeah, I guess it would probably be in kilos. Yeah. But I mm -hmm. don't know. It's, yeah. I remember the number 12 for some reason, but maybe that's just because Davis keeps saying 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then some of it too is that if you take like, there's all this math too, where if you take like the radii of a circle and then draw a triangle from that, an equilateral triangle with that radii, you can divide a circle into six of those triangles. Oh. And so you, and then because you're using a base 60 system, you have six 60s and it's easier to describe. Then you can describe the minute moments between like each degree essentially of that circle easier with 360 of them than you could with like six of them yeah, or just 60 alone. Mm -hmm. And then there's some, um, and as well, this is something that I found when I was researching was that like the movement of the sun relative to other like fixed position stars in the sky relates to about like one degree uh, a minute or something like that. So it works out to this 360 degrees uh, as well. Wild. Yeah, so that's where, like, so this base 60 is still at play in all of our clocks and all of our timekeeping systems throughout the world because it's easier to describe the movement of a circle in base 60 than in base 10. So that's why we're using it. That so, makes sense. Yeah. So this is why I went down this rabbit hole so deep because it was so, like, to kind of get to the answer of, like, why do we use 60 seconds? Why do we use, you know, um... 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, but 24 hours in a day. It comes from this, basically, the entire antiquity of humanity of how we've kept time, essentially. Yeah. Very cool. You're, you're very excited about this. I am really excited about this. This was, <laughs> this was sort of, this was really cool. I actually thought this was really interesting. Um, and number systems, like the different bases is something that's very interesting to me as well, because there's, someone once told me that like, there's some belief that if we did use a base 12 system, like a lot of our mathematics are much, are much simpler, mm. um, but we use base 10 because of like, it's just again, certain conventions and conveniences and stuff like that. Even like the different number forms, like, Arabic, the Arabic Indian number system that we all use today has advantages because it's a plate, it has place value like built into it. So if you, you know, you know, if you write 123, the one represents hundreds, yeah. the two, right? And there's all these rules for it. Whereas like some things for base 60 and stuff like that, it doesn't, it doesn't translate as easily, but they would have had a really sophisticated understanding of how to use their system of to course. do all these complex things. But like from our minds today, it's hard to conceptualize. Especially like, the Western, like air quotes, the Western model of thinking in the way that we think about, especially numbers, mm -hmm. right? Like we think of them as very concrete and there's only one way to do them. But if you look out at the rest of the world, there's a whole bunch of other different counting methods mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that 
yeah, I can't, I think there's one from Indonesia. I heard about this more of like a body counting system. So numbers correspond to different parts of the body. And then you get into like body sense and body memory in addition to numbers and counting. And it's, it's very, it's a very neat one. Yeah. For sure. So this all to say that there we've all, we've had this, obviously math is super connected to the development of the human society. Um, numbers. Numbers are really important. It's, it's actually really crazy to think about. Um, but obviously all of this comes about, a lot of this comes about for measuring time or some of it does at least. And time has always been, so uh, marking the passage of time has always been really important mm -hmm. to humans, especially once you're agricultural, you need to mark the months, when's the best time to plant, when's the best time to harvest. Yeah, when you're not just like roaming around with the mm -hmm. with the stars and the weather. And obviously like the sundial has some disadvantages, right? If you're at a place where the sun's movement changes throughout the year, you can't, you have to move the sundial or have different markings on the sundial to translate to different parts of the day. Like you were saying with the Greeks taking out certain sections of it right yeah or you would have these sundials with both markings on it so oh, it would be yeah. like here's the summer markings and here is the you know the the winter markings yeah. they'd have and then you can only make a sundial for the latitude that yeah. you're at yeah. you can't make it for a different one um, what happens when it's cloudy exactly or at <laughs> night so there's no telling time at night <laughs> you just exist in the darkness exactly you just wait for the dawn huddled <laughs> huddled in fear <laughs> So from the werewolves. Yeah. Or, or you could use one of these newfangled burning candles that mark time. So that was something that the Chinese were using for a very long time was uh, to basically you would either take candles and you would have marked segments, evenly marked segments, and you would, as the candle burned down, that would mark a specific segment of time. Mm -hmm. uh, even to the point where there's some evidence that even before the candles were used that they might have used um, traditional lamps where like oil lamps and you would want monitor the oil reservoir okay. uh, dropping down smart way to do it but like sundials there's an issue with consistency right you got the quality of the wax you've got drafts with the candles and stuff like that affecting the way that they burn so then what was developed was the water clock because mm -hmm. the movement of water is a little bit more can be a little bit more reliable and so the the first clepsidra i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right that's just like the word that i found um it's like Hydra? Yeah. C-L-E-P-S-Y-D-R-A. And, so <laughs> and, so, and the earliest archaeological evidence of this, this device is also from 1500 BCE. Okay. Uh, and so basically there's a number of different ways that these things would work. Is either you would have a container where you would be having, you have like a steady outflow of water and you would mark segments on it like the candles. Or you'd have something that it's filling up. Eventually, these started to get really sophisticated and people started to build mechanisms with them because you can use the weight of the water filling buckets right. to move machinery and stuff like that. So to the point where there's one, and I think you can still visit this place in Athens today. It's called the Temple of the Wind. And it has this really sophisticated water clock in it, or used to. And it would, you know, and then it had sundials at each of the eight principal wind directions. So you think about like the compass rows, essentially. Uh, and that would be, it was the most accurate time-telling device in the world. It was built around 50 BCE. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it still stands today. So you can sort of, you could go and visit it and stuff. It's the pretty neat. Tower of the Wind. I think you said temple. Yes. But. Yeah. Tower of the Wind. Because it is a tower. It's like a little, oh. little hexagonal sort of, or I guess it would be octagonal. octagonal. <laughs> yeah. If you got eight. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's uh, astronomer Su Sang and his associates. They built an elaborate 
water clock or clepsydra in 1088 bce and it had like a rotating globe oh, wow. and like it would ring gongs automatically to signify certain parts of the day <gasps> Right. Like a really, really, really early cuckoo clock. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and then getting into this. So, okay. Um, <laughs> I was so excited. I, could, like, I actually own it. a cuckoo clock. Um, <laughs> I just don't have it up because they're kind of annoying. Yeah, but they're a lot. They're really cool. But, uh, you know, you think about a cuckoo clock, right? It's got the, pe- the um, it's not a pendulum. It's got those, the weights, right? The counterweights. Mm. That's actually based, like, one of the earliest mechanical clocks was, an es- it's called an escapement system. So, basically, you would have a rock on a string tied to an axle and as the rock falls it it's going to release this it's going to pull the axle and spin it and then it's connected to a gear which will pull against another piece of machinery and that'll create the ticking motion so it's basically it's sort of controlling the drop of it but you're also using it to drive this motion so that would be right so you think about it the rock is falling because of the force of gravity but the, it's spinning a wheel but do you have to like hold the rock and then drop it and then if and then it just stops working like how does the <laughs> okay so have you ever seen a cuckoo clock with the little things hanging down from it legit just thought they were aesthetic no, never really, yeah. <laughs> never so looked at clocks. Those are the counterweights. So a certain time of day when it's too low, you have to pull up on the chain so that the counterweight comes to the oh. top again. It's like um, it's the same sort of thing with older watches. You have to have to wind, wind them. them. Okay, I've heard of this. I've never seen this because those are <laughs> escapement systems. The when you wind a watch, it's a spring-loaded system, but you're loading it up with tension and then it's releasing over the day to give the ticking motion. Okay. So you have to wind it back up. Nowadays they have all these fancy ones that are like wound with gyroscopic motion and you just like move your wrist around a lot. If you talk with your hands i guess your watch is always round <laughs> my dad has one and he literally like he got some 3d printing work done by like a guy on kijiji and he built like a little mechanical electric gyroscope that like rotates and it's got like sensors so it'll know when it needs to go and it's, it's pretty funny it's he's very <laughs> when he built it, it was very cute because he was just like he had it on the kitchen table he's like look at it <laughs> it just sort of goes <laughs> <laughs> sounds like exactly the project you would like to do <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty neat it's one of those cool little like maker project kind of mm-hmm. things so these are like the earliest clocks Obviously, though, same sort of thing. You got this issue with reliability. You got thick friction and different forces, and you're, you're pulling the chain up every time. And, and if you miss it, then what happens? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the whole device falls apart now. Yeah. Time as we know it stops. Yeah. And so the, eventually, they switch to, like, a pendulum driven. A lot of this is starting to happen around, like, the medieval era. So there's some evidence of the earliest sort of like town clocks around, like, 900 CE, but the real, like, the real like solid record of them is around like 1275 CE, so common era, and which is like the era we're in now. We exist there. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of this has to do with like monks in monasteries and things like that, need, like Christian monks needing to tell time mm-hmm. for the planning of chores and certain things and all this stuff. And they also had time to always make sure they were going and mm-hmm. like either pulling the weights or like setting the <laughs> So that the stuff. the bells of Notre Dame can ring on time. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the bells, the bells. And yeah, so then you switch to the pendulum and you keep, we keep kind of going up this, the complexity chain a little bit of the these The pendulum devices. we can think of like with a grandfather clock, right? Exactly. Okay. And so originally this pendulum motion was described by Galileo. It mm-hmm. took a few more years before it was utilized to create more precise clocks. But pendulums have a bit of a disadvantage as well because you can't move or shift them because you're affecting the pendulum motion. So they weren't very good at C. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Like we have this thing that's swinging on a boat that's swaying. Mm -hmm. and then. Yeah, so then what's invented in 1761. So you think about now you've got like 500 years before the next, like for the real game-changing clock technology. (laughs) 
I mean, it was. You're laughing. Yeah. It's super dorky, but it's very true. <laughs> so then you get the chronometer. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. That's right. Sounds fancy. And now you can measure time accurately at sea. And it was sort of this combination of a spring escapement system and all this sort of fancy stuff. Yeah. So now you're being able to tell time at sea, but all of a sudden it's starting to become more important to have a standardized way of telling time or like of, of relating time to each other. Mm -hmm. It used to be, right, if it takes you like six weeks to travel from like one village to the next village because you got to load up your, you know, your Oregon Trail little... I thought you said Oregon Trail and I was like, well, what are we talking about now? <laughs> you ever play that old like MS-DOS yeah, game? Oregon yeah, Oregon Trail. Trail. Yeah, yeah. There's you a, died of dysentery. Yeah, there's a great... Um, oh, unfortunately, I can't remember the name right now, but there's a great like website where you can find all these open source games Ooh. from back then, like all those really old ones and you can play them on emulators through the browser. Do they have Math Circus? I'm sure they have. I'm sure they do. Like they have hundreds and hundreds of these like classic like okay. educational yeah. like these weird ones you'd get at like school and yeah, stuff like on that. Yeah, the one school computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, anyway, so you know, it would take like months and months to do some of these long journeys. So it doesn't really matter. You just get there, you figure it out once you're there. Exactly. It's like, oh, well, what time of day is it now where I'm here? But as like the railways start to proliferate, yeah. as shipping, international shipping becomes more and more important and things are happening faster, and the growth of telecommunications, especially, say, yeah. it becomes more important to have this like standardized way of telling time. And so in 1883, there was a conference. <gasps> But, oh, a conference. <laughs> <laughs> well, and are you, you've probably heard like of Greenwich Mean Time. Yes. Right. What do you know about Greenwich Mean Time? Not much. But um, you know, like kind of, yeah. What it's is like, yeah. It's like the. Or the prime like, meridian. Is that where, like, if you're looking at like in Calgary, we are like something plus what, like eight or something? Is, is mm. Mean Time like. If it's zero, then everything else counts up or down from there. It, yes, that's a, okay. that's a really good place to start with it too. Um, and nowadays we don't actually use the GMT anymore. Now it's something different, but it's it, it's still based around the same uh, reference point essentially. Same sort of thing. Earth is a sphere, so how do you pick your starting point when you say, okay, well, like this is this is, it is now midnight. You but, pick the most important people in the world at that time, and they get to have the say. Well, this is sort of, so this was established because this is where this conference was held, yeah. in Greenwich, at the Greenwich Observatory. So the prime meridian, which is zero latitude, um, or longitude, sorry, uh, cuts through the Greenwich Observatory. And they had this international conference in 1883 to say, like, look. All your clocks are set to all this crazy crap, and we're tired of it. And you're going to all get on board. And we're all going to listen. You're all going to get on board. And we're all gonna just going to pick a time where to stick to it. And they established, so they divided the globe into these 15 degree wide segments. And they called them the time zones. Time and, zones. Exactly. And they said, all of the meridians are now based off of this zero point in Greenwich. And everything is going to be relative to that. And we're all going to go away and there's going to be much less confusion. <laughs> in theory. In theory. So this is how we came to have, like, the time zones. And then obviously there was, like, allowance for, as you can tell, if you look at a time zone map, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's, like, big jaggedy lines. And yeah. Stuff. So there's a lot of political basis to the shape of time zones today. Yeah. So that's why a country like China, which is much wider than 15 degrees longitudinally, has one standard time zone for the whole country. That sounds like a problem. 
Well, and even like... <laughs> that I, sounds wrong. It sounds like scientifically inaccurate, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, yeah, your experience on the most eastern edge of China would be different than the most western edge of China. Yeah, like hours your off. experience of the day and hours off, right? And then to a certain extent, like again, like unless you're communicating specifically with that person, it's not really like the end of the world or whatever, yeah. but it would have a big impact. Or even to the point where there's certain, um, if you look at a time zone map of Australia for the areas that observe DST, which we'll get into in a second. DST, daylight saving time. Sorry. Yeah. Acronyms abound. <laughs> um, they, there are provinces in, I think they call them provinces, uh, in Australia where two of them are sitting right on top of each other and one observes DST, but one doesn't. So that uh... means they're at the same longitude, <laughs> but... Part of the year, one of them is an hour ahead and the other is an hour behind. And then part of the year, they're on the same time. But, like, physically, the time would be the same. Yeah. Like, the movement, the position yeah, the, of the, the sun. The sun is the same. <laughs> <laughs> Just what we decide to call it. Mm-hmm. So this is what, this is why this got so fascinating to me, like, looking for the history of DST. Because, like, it, it goes so far back into this, like, ancient, ancient history. And it's just like, well, why do we use 12? It's like, well, somebody, somebody thousands of years ago just drew 12 segments. And we've just stuck with that ever since. Yep. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. And then people tried to fix it and they went, oh, no, this this yeah. is worse. <laughs> and again, like, you can, you can actually buy, um, like, you can buy a metric clock. And it has, t- it's, it's base 10. So I don't think it's one to 10 on the clock face, but I, I can't quite remember, but it's really weird. I meant to like pull up, like I, I'm sure there's like an app online too. You could pull up what, what is metric time right now, but uh, there's a metric calendar. Uh, it's, there's all, there's all sorts of crazy different like systems of measurement that are used uh, for telling time. So last piece of history, I promise. Okay. Okay. I'm enjoying this. It's good. Yeah. It's the story time with Davis. Oh, yeah. Also, also, GMT was replaced. Greenwich Mean Time was replaced with universal. Well, sorry. It's not universal. It doesn't start. This is a really weird acronym. It uh, uni- Coordinated Universal Time. UTC. Is it French, maybe? Sometimes acronyms are... Even oh, funnier than this. Okay. So, because I thought the Even exact- funnier than French? <laughs> <laughs> One of the romance languages. So, well, because I thought the exact same thing, yeah. right? Because, uh, like, SI units, right? Um, which are standardized units come from Systems International or Systemique yeah. International, yeah. which was a conference again about standardizing units for physics and science. We won't get into that now. <laughs> <laughs> but so I thought the exact same thing. So I looked it up. It, UTC is a comparable because it's like time universal um, coordinatique or something like that. Pardon my French, quite literally. Um, so it was a compromise between C-U-T and T-U-C, uh, the English and the French, and it went with U-T-C. No one is happy. <laughs> hey, this was the 70s. We were a little bit better at compromising. Maybe. I don't know. Well, I, I appreciate that, you know. Then no one's happy. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a little confused, but then everyone's on the same boat. Yeah. No one so, won. <laughs> exactly. So Greenwich Mean Time is still a time zone, mm. but it is based but it's like the it's utc plus zero right so we exist yeah utc plus eight or whatever minus. it might be minus eight yeah yeah and again that has to do with the international date line which is again on that same line but it's just like an arbitrary date in or an arbitrary line in the ocean where you fly over it and the days change Woo. yeah only in one direction though which is always funny so that's why superman can fly around the earth fast enough to make time go backwards <laughs> Because he just keeps crossing the international date line. Uh-huh. That's, how time, that's uh-huh. how time works. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where does daylight savings time come from? 
I don't know, Davis. And Where this, does it come this from? is a hilarious story. Oh. I actually think this is really funny. I, I know a story, but I have no idea if it's accurate because I did not look it up. It's hilarious. And then it's sad, right? When you okay. start to think about like, well, why do we, why does this matter so much? And like, why does it continue to dictate our lives and stuff like that? Can, it's a story. of. Hmm? Can I tell you my, my random story that yes. might or might not be true? Yes. Uh, so the random memory that I have way back when is that we did daylight savings time because it would save money on like candles and then on electricity. Yes. Oh. This is, you are, you I are. I know things. Yeah. Ooh, yes. This is a, this is a key component to the story. Okay. Yeah. This is a linchpin perhaps of okay. why we're all stuck with this system now. <laughs> so the first, so sometimes it's attributed to Ben Franklin. Okay. Um, but it's not really, there's other, like Ben Franklin may have first sort of come up with it. The story sort of goes that Ben Franklin was in France, studying in France at the time or whatever. And he forgot to close his curtains the night before when he went to bed. And so he was awoken at a, at a dastardly 6am on like his normal 11 or whatever. I don't know how much Ben Franklin slept, but he was awoken at like 6am to the sunlight or whatever. And he sort of had this idea around like, well, if you shifted, I think he was annoyed or something like that. So it's like, well, if you shifted the hours, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. But he never really described like the system and it wouldn't be implemented in the States for like many, many years to come. But then what happens in 1895, George Hudson, so this is sort of now your first official proposal of it. He proposes a two hour switch to create more after work daylight hours. So this is in Britain. Now, George Hudson secretly, well, not secretly, he was an entomologist, but he really wanted, he, what he really wanted was more time after work to go bug hunting ah. in the summer. So he proposed this switch. <laughs> It'd be good for everybody. Mostly mm. me. <laughs> exactly. And there was some interest in it, but it was just never formally adopted. Then uh, a man by the name of William Wellett proposed to the British Parliament in 1902 the same thing, an hour switch. So not two, but one. And Churchill supported this, but the movement ultimately was defeated in Parliament. Nobody really wanted to do it. Everybody thought it was crazy. So uh, it wasn't until like 1918 that it was put into place in the States, but it was first used actually in Canada. First place in the world, 1908. In what what is today Thunder Bay. Uh, But where daylight savings so so again in europe it had sort of been proposed there were a lot of circles of thinkers that were like hey this is a thing we could like save more daylight hours we could do more fun stuff in the evening but what happened was in world war one germany was looking for more ways to save energy mm-hmm. because they were in the middle of a war effort and they needed to try to save yeah conserve all your oil all your electricity any, everything you needed so they adopted dst across the country so that they would use less resources by shifting the day, essentially, in the summertime, uh, and making more use of those daylight hours where you don't need to burn lamps for fuel and all those sorts of things. The, and all their allies sort of followed suit. The other side of the war, obviously, not wanting to... uh, to, Be like the Germans. Well, well, no, not (laughs) wanting to be, like, outdone, right? And, like, and have your enemy have an advantage that you don't have. They all rushed to adopt it, too. So then all of the sudden, it sort of just becomes convention, and now we're stuck with DST. And then later, there's some suggestion as well that there's a lot of corporate interest behind keeping DST from even like from commercial food establishments, because you'll sell, you know, more milkshakes, more ice cream, more hamburgers if the daylight hours are longer in the summertime, because people have more leisure hours. I don't know if we, I feel like we haven't explained this Yet, actually, but, mm. but like what daylight savings actually does. So mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. the spring forward fall back. 
Yes. Where is in the spring, we all lose an hour, and in the fall, we all gain an hour in our days, air quotes. Yeah, um, gain and lose, yeah. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> there's in the spring, you go through a period of time where you're like, oh, it's getting bright earlier, and then all of a sudden, it's not? No, backwards? Well, okay, so like forward. in another few weeks in November, we're going to fall back. So we're going to yes. turn all the clocks an hour back, which which will put us back into mountain standard time, which is like the actual time. Right yes. now we're in fake time, the constructive fake time. time. <laughs> That's how I always describe <laughs> it to people. And so we'll put the out, we'll put our clocks an hour back. So 6 a.m. will become 5 a.m., right? right? And if the sun doesn't, and which is real, again, Real, real time. time. <laughs> real time. And in the winter, obviously, this far north, the sun starts, changes how long it's in the sky. So if, as the sun rises have been getting later and later and later, we've now pushed time back anyway, back to what it should be. But so now, you know, 6 a.m. Or sorry, you go a little bit further in the morning, it's easier. Like 9 a.m. used to be dark, but now 9 a.m. is 8 a.m. Yeah. So 9 a.m. is light. Because now we've pushed, you know, we've yeah. changed where our perception of the sunrise is. Right. And it gives us more light. So the fall back gives us more light in the morning yeah. and less light in the evening. Whereas the spring forward gives us less light in the morning and more light in the evening. Mm -hmm. Which we can see in like Calgary here. It'll stay light until like 11, 1130 yeah. at night when you're in June around the solstice. And you go to places like Iceland yeah. and in day, the maybe. summer, yeah, there's going to be a period of time where the sun never truly sets. Mm -hmm. Or even the days that it is set, it's sort of like twilight because it's so low below the horizon, you're still getting lots of light. Yeah. It's a really cool, and then the opposite in the winter, obviously. Yeah. But it's a really cool experience. It's very trippy to hear birds like chirping at 2 a.m. Yeah. Or be on like the beach and it'd be two in the morning, but it's like an overcast day. Wow. Like that's all it seems like, just like a cloudy day. Um, it's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. But so, but a lot of this comes from because like we don't work, like our work, it's not like our working hours shift because the days change length and things like yeah. that. You typically are working this like the nine to five, you know, five days a week or whatever. And so it just sort of, because of the convention of the way that our social lives are structured, we continue to use this like DST. And so that's where I kind of feel like sad about it because yeah. it's like, ah, yes, in service of our capitalist overlords, <laughs> we like have to switch the clocks. We have to exist <laughs> in different times so we can buy more stuff and so that we can like work the same hour, amount of hours and not feel as terrible about ourselves because the sun doesn't rise. But there are places that resist it. Like I believe mm -hmm. there's a couple of Canadian provinces. So Saskatchewan does not observe DST. Right. Yeah. So if you're driving through the country... Depending when you're driving through, it can uh, your your time change is different. Like mm -hmm. I think when I drove out initially from Ontario to here, it was in September or late August, and yeah, it was like you kind of I was like yeah, we have to change the clocks this many times, and then we didn't change them as many times as I thought, and I was like, what happened? What mm -hmm. happened in the middle there? <laughs> yeah, and even to the point where there has there have been attempts to implement permanent DST. Which um, is what our referendum is all about. Yeah, and this is what the weird thing about the way the question is posed is that, like, tip, tri really, there should be three options presented in the vote. Yes. You should be able to choose between what we have now, status quo, where we switch <laughs> the clocks, <clears throat> permanent DST, which is what the question is asking, basically saying, do you want permanent DST, yes or no? Yeah. But you should have the third option of permanent MST, which would be normal time and the abolishment of DST. Yeah, permanent standard time, actual standard time. Mm -hmm. And most of the science into how DST affects humans and just, and as we'll get into it a little bit later, the chronobiology of it, which is a super cool word, yeah. um, 
basically suggests that permanent DST is actually one of like the worst choices yep. for the way the human organism sort of works and thinks about its day. Yep. And in the seventies, there was a period of time where there was permanent uh, DST in the States and they had to repeal it. It lasted like a year. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. there were all these additional accidents mm-hmm. happening in the daytime or in the morning time when people are traveling, but the sun hasn't risen yet. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, a quote I found by someone named Michael Antel, who works for the Hot- Hotchkiss Brain Institute and is vice president of the Canadian Society for Chronobiology, uh, which is like time and biology, is a DST delays the dawn and our circadian clocks depend on the morning light to be in proper alignment. Uh, so yes, the, the United States for in the 1970s, early 70s, adopted year-round DST, but abandoned, due in large part to an increase in car accidents during the winter months, right? Because if you have... Uh, if you used to switch permanently to daylight savings time, then, you know, in November, like when, when the, we start getting later, instead of doing the fall back, our day, our, our sunrise gets later and later and later. So like in, in Calgary, it would mean sunrise would be after 9.30 AM. And then in, in Edmonton, which is north of us, it'd be even later. And then Grand Prairie, which is north of Edmonton, the sunrise wouldn't be until like 10.30 AM which would be brutal. Like, could you imagine getting up and you're at work for a couple of hours before the mm-hmm. sun comes up? Yeah. That would be tough. And yes, you get home in the evening and you have a bit more daylight, but you're still, you're forcing yourself to get up when the sun's not up. And a lot of our biology is linked to the sun mm-hmm. and the rising of the sun because we are just biological little creatures. Um, and another quote, uh, I believe it's from Antel again, was with the later sunrise. We wind up forcing ourselves out of bed and behind the wheel of a car before our bodies are ready. And that's what causes the accidents, sleepy drivers. Because studies have shown that uh, driving well exhausted and driving well tired can be just as bad as driving well intoxicated. Why are you smiling? <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm laughing because, okay, so uh, I, I did one of those like AMA driving courses when I was a teenager before mm-hmm. getting my license. And they showed us like all these like all those like PSAs oh, like all course. the driving PSAs yeah. and a lot of them are Australian just because like Australia did this huge campaign against like certain you know uh, dangerous driving habits and stuff like that okay. and they were allowed to show like certain things on TV for the purpose of this oh, so there's a okay. lot of these like Australian PSAs that are like super wa- like not even out there they're like legit graphic like because they're trying to show you like the horrors of what you oh. are ta- what risks you're taking like the drunk driving assemblies in high yeah. school yeah exactly um, there's there there was even a trend of them in Canada at one point that like really scarred me which they were all re- related to workplace incidents oh. uh there's like a there's one where like a woman's carrying like a like a giant pot of like boiling water or whatever and she slips oh, on grease no. and, yeah it's really bad no. I used to work at a dishwasher at the time and we had a pot that was that big so like where I was always it? like terrified that, I was, <laughs> that was gonna happen to me um but there's I just I was laughing because there's this one where it's about driving tired and it's got this guy and he's like driving down the highway he's on a road trip and he all looks all chipper and he's still having a good time and then uh, and then it's like cuts to like 15 hours later or whatever and he's like a zombie like it's like he's like literally wearing like almost zombie makeup oh, where they've got like these huge black bags under his eyes and like he's all gone to looks like he's he's been driving for a hundred years or something it's really funny um and then he like falls asleep at the wheel yeah. and like not paying attention and then he like crashes into a tanker truck that for oh. some reason has gotten like jackknifed oh. sideways or whatever happens. and the whole thing explodes of course it <laughs> and it's like it's not wrong like driving tired is it, it can be as bad as being intoxicated yeah. And like, and the whole thing is a sort of like take a fifteen minute. The whole purpose of the ad was like take a fifteen minute nap 
yeah you'll save lives kind of thing but just the choice to like one put him in this ghastly makeup <laughs> and then two have him like drive into a tanker truck and explode like out of a james bond movie <laughs> and then you're showing this to a bunch of like 15 year olds that have been locked in the same room for a whole weekend that's true yeah and we've watched like a dozen of these at this oh, point in time very depressing i remember a lot of them not always for the reason that these ad makers originally yeah. meant for them to be memorable yeah. But yeah, so anyway, so, suffice we, to say, yes, driving driving, <laughs> driving tired is bad. Is bad, yes. Leads you to make bad driving PSAs. Yes, exactly. They were probably sleep deprived. Probably, probably. probably. It just let, it's all, all leads together. Mm-hmm. Um. And, it, and that leads us <laughs> to the discussion of circadian rhythm. Yes. Uh, so another uh, quote from Antle that I found was really good was... Uh, our bosses and teachers demand that we follow the clocks on the on our wall or on our phones, and our circadian clock struggles to do that. It leads to something we call social jet lag, and it poses very real threats to our health. Because um, like a permanent change to DST would mean five difficult months of waking up in darkness, as opposed to the the like summertime change, mm-hmm. right? So yes, circadian rhythm, circadian. Uh, and the circadian rhythm is about the biological system that keeps the body in sync with the cycles of day and night in general. Um, there are other factors that can influence our circadian rhythm, which are social interactions, exercise or activity, and temperature. And almost all organisms have their own circadian rhythm. So it's not just humans, it's not just mammals, but you got your birds and your reptiles and even things like bacteria and algae, even certain unicellular organisms, they have this, uh, this master clock. As okay, it's here's here's my stump you question. Oh what no! A, what about those organisms that live in like the deepest caves and have never seen daylight and like have evolved in these completely lightless environments? Uh, my guess is that they might still have a vestige of the system because they would have evolved from something mm-hmm. that would have a circadian type clock. Um, and there have been studies where, like, even if you put, like, uh, we'll get into this in a, in a minute, but like if you put like a human or an animal with a strong circadian clock into pure darkness, their clock, their circadian rhythm doesn't actually alter very much. Mm. It's light at weird times that has more of an impact than pure darkness. So they might actually still be on a rhythm, but over, you know, generations with evolution as it works, if you uh, take something like you put them in a situation where the the rhythm of the, the sun doesn't really, isn't going to have any impact on their life. Like solitary confinement. Yeah. For tiny, it's like the tiny little fish that used to have eyes and don't have eyes anymore because they live in pure darkness. Exactly. So, so they, they could be losing something like that, but uh, their circadian rhythm is a much deeper and more ancient biological system mm-hmm. compared to eyes. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, too, that there's probably still some level of, like, daily or, you know, longer length period yeah. cycles in their environment anyway. So you ha- yeah. there's still probably some rhythm to their biology. Absolutely. And you still need to sleep. And circadian rhythm does a... A lot with sleep. But we'll mm-hmm. get there in a second. Uh, so <laughs> we have we have this master clock, our circadian rhythm, which is we always think of twenty four hours, but you can think of it more as twenty four hours plus or minus four hours. So it it kind of it has a bit of an oscillation. It can go kind of as low as twenty. It can go up to twenty eight. But twenty four plus or minus four. And everybody's is like as an individual too. Like everybody's own circadian rhythms are slightly different. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and we can see that a lot. I mean, you look at like teenagers versus adults mm. versus older adults right because your teenagers they their clock is a little shifted they they're not as good in the mornings um and they're more wired to stay up later mm. whereas once you get into adulthood 
I mean, most adults are just perpetually tired anyway, but you're a bit more, like a bit more morning, you have to start going to bed later or mm. earlier. And then when you get older, like you, I'm sure we all have stories of grandparents or aunts and uncles and you're like, why do they wake up at five? Why do they eat dinner at 4 p.m.? Because the blue they're- hair special, baby. Because <laughs> their circadian <laughs> rhythm has shifted, right? Um, and that's why sometimes like they propose like, they propose like starting high schools later. Yeah, yeah. I've right? heard that a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's actually been some tests of that where you'll end up with fewer accidents and higher test scores mm. because you have students like seniors driving to school and if they're super tired because their body is just telling them to stay up later, mm. that can all can all kind of tie in that way. Um, but yeah, so there's many body systems tied to the presence of sunlight, which is not just, so not just our sleep systems, uh, but also eating and digestion can be very tied to this. Uh, so sleeping, like I said, with a melatonin, the release of melatonin. Oh, uh, yes. Everybody's taking them melatonin pills. Yep. A lot of people do that. They do. Because mm-hmm. uh, melatonin is your natural, your body starts producing it in the evenings. Uh, it makes you sleepy. Mm-hmm. So if you want like a natural remedy for sleeplessness, then a lot of people end up trying melatonin supplements because it supplements a natural thing your body's already creating. And there's some evidence to suggest that because we look at screens so much mm-hmm. and the blue light particularly yep. from screens tr- sort of triggers a lot of those same reactions like sunlight does yep. that we're not producing as much melatonin. Exactly. And that's why they say that you shouldn't look at your phone while you're in bed going to sleep. Yep. Yeah, I think I've heard out. it's like you should, like uh, 30 minutes or an hour before bed, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be looking at any screens. Mm-hmm. And then all of us go, okay. But <laughs> as yeah. we like plug our phones <laughs> in and use them as alarm clocks. I know. It's like, I, like I'm like halfway there where it's just like, it's like, I don't usually, I can't play video games before like an hour before bed because yeah. it'll be too engaging. Also though, because when I was a child, I would like play Pokemon way too late and I would literally <laughs> sleepwalk. They're like, like I'm, I'm not a sleepwalker. I don't sleepwalk anymore. You, wait, like you, to my knowledge, at least. Were you sleep catching Pokemon? Were you like wandering around, like throwing oranges being like, I choose you. So the story goes, <laughs> this is a creepy story. Oh, no. <laughs> it is, it is October. It is spooked over. Um, <laughs> so the story goes is that this is back in like the day of like red and blue classic Game Boy oh, Color Pokemon. I was like, the day of red and blue? Yeah, where those were the only two colors. <laughs> that were movies, I don't exactly, know what we're talking about. Exactly, everything was in stereoscopic vision. Okay, um, red, and no, Pokemon, red and blue Pokemon, which were Game Boy games that exactly. came out in the 90s. People people know what Pokemon Some, is. Yeah, but they don't know. Anyway. Anyway, so, <laughs> playing Pokemon on my Game Boy Color. Trying to catch them legendary birds, right? <laughs> <laughs> Trying real late, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but but apparently, and uh, this happened a couple of times, but the one time that's really prominent is that I, I apparently got up in the middle of the night sleepwalking, walked into my parents' bedroom, <laughs> stood, like my parents have like a little two step down into like the main part of their bedroom. So they have like the ensuite to the one side, like an entry landing, and then two steps down in the rest of the bedroom. Okay. And I apparently like came into this like landing and just stood there <laughs> and was like muttering. <laughs> It's just like, I'm going to try to emulate it now. It's like, it's like, and and Zapdos is a legendary Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) So just muttering about it. And after that, I wasn't allowed to play video games too late at night. And it's something that I still do to this day out of fear of sleepwalking. That's good. It worked well. It was a good deterrent. Yeah. Like how old could I, I must've been like. You know, I was born in 93, Pokemon came out, and I, I could have been more than, like, five or six at that time. Maybe. Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. Anyway, it's pretty funny. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Everything in um, moderation, kids. Yeah. Uh, and if you are on your phone or something late into the evening, a lot of phones will have a, a function where you can put on, 
let me look at what it is called. Uh, there's dark mode, mm. and then there's night shift. And if you put night shift on... No, then night it... shift sounds like Pokemon. <laughs> yes. It's because of nightshade. But anyway, sorry. Yes. But, <laughs> so night shift, uh, the, a Pokemon move, or Zapdos a way to... Is a legendary Pokemon. <laughs> uh, as Davis giggles... Um, so night shift takes the blue light away from your screen and it, it puts more in like reds and yellow tones. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier. Like I, I notice a, a substantial difference if I have night shift on or not is as I go into the evening, turn it on. It uh, will help your, like, I find it helps my eyes a lot because the, the blue light can get really, really straining on my eyes into the evening. Mm -hmm. So putting on night shift does that. And then whatever the other one was, is one that like, instead of all the backgrounds being automatically white, they'll be automatically black. Mm. So to balance it out that way as well. You can even get, like, people that wear glasses, you can get, like, a coating on the lenses. Yeah, the blue, blue light. light. Yeah. yeah, blue light filter. So people yeah. that work at computers a lot will usually get that. Yeah. Mm. There's also programs you can get for your computer. Like, there's one called Flux, and it's a free program. Uh, but you get it, and you can set it to be automatic or just whenever you want. And it will it will change the light of coming out of your screen based on the time of day. So as it gets into evening... now. I don't use it very much in the winter time here because otherwise it like it goes like really really amber for mm, your screen yeah, yeah. and it will be amber at like 4:30 because the sun is down. So I don't have it track that but you can set it to whatever level you want and it just kind of helps to take the edge off if you do have to stare at a screen and you still want to be able to sleep. Uh mm. well. But like I said sleep is not the only thing our circadian rhythm impacts. It also impacts we got sleeping, we got eating and digestion, we have mating. A little more in the animal kingdom, less in the humans, because we uh, are weird and we mess with that system a lot. Um, but also, we body... do whatever we want. We do what we want, <laughs> uh, but also body temperature and hormone release are things impacted by uh, our body systems tied to the sun and the sun cycle. Uh, we also have certain, like a cycle, we'll go through in a day cognitively based mm -hmm. on our circadian rhythm and all of that. So we're cognitively best for the most part. I know we have our, our early birds and our night owls and all of that, but we're cognitively typically best in like the mid-morning, kind of like, I think the idea is like 9.30 to like 9.30, 10.30-ish mm. is when a lot of people are pretty productive. And then a lot of people go through an afternoon lull, kind of that 1 to 3 p.m. Everyone wants to take a nap. Uh, and then we'll have another productive period in the uh, early evening. And other animals don't do the once a day sleep method that we do because humans are like we're awake all day and then we sleep for eight hours or the goal is eight hours <laughs> uh, but very few other animals will do that sort of sleep cycle like they'll they'll sleep for shorter chunks of time more frequently as opposed to one big chunk of time all at once uh, so so napping might be good you know if you can work in a nap <laughs> uh, if you are so fortunate <laughs> mm. to be able to take midday naps uh, and one thing about the circadian rhythms that's important is that they're typically described as self-sustaining or free running. So this means they're expressed in the absence of any 24-hour signals from the external environment. So this could be confusing because it's like it the circadian rhythm is definitely tied to the sun and to light. But like I said, if you took uh, if you took a human or something with a strong circadian rhythm and you throw them in pure darkness, their their circadian rhythm will not alter very much. Mm. Um, it's the introduction of artificial light that messes us up the most, more so than the actual change. So self-sustaining, they kind of work on their own. And uh, it can also be entrained. So entrainment, E-N, trainment. Uh, so this just means that rhythms can be trained to or by external cues. So like if, Davis, if you traveled six hours east and then you get there and all of a sudden it's six hours later in the day, no, yeah, 
whatever. If you traveled yeah. six time hours. Yeah, if I went six <laughs> hours, yeah, if I traveled yeah. six time zones east, it'd be six hours ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you might be in the middle of the water. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so, actually. Here. I think so. But if you were in the middle of the water. Be uh, in that weird half time zone. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> Yeah, in Nova Scotia. <laughs> uh, but your, your body would be able to adjust. So you would have jet lag and mm-hmm. you might yeah. have, it might take a couple days, but you would be able to shift over to it. Your circadian rhythm as a whole would not change in terms of the 24 plus or minus four. So that's the self-sustaining consistency part of it. Mm -hmm. But you can shift it. You can train it, the entrainment process, to a new, like, time zone. But the, the, the overall structure of it is not compromised. Apparently it takes an hour a day to adjust. So for every, so for every hour of time that you've changed, it takes a day to adjust yeah. to it so if you go so that's why like daylight savings time really does a number on people because it takes like a whole day yeah. just to recover uh and that's and it's it's true that's both something like anecdotally that i've heard and i found in like a research paper while i was researching for this that was cited as like in part of the review paper yeah. was that yeah typically it takes an hour per day right uh yeah a day per hour yeah i, I just tend to that. fly at like weird times oh, so I love if the you red eye if you fly in the evenings or in the mornings then then you're just tired anyway you don't really mm-hmm. notice the time change you just get there and it's like how do you feel you're like i don't know i've had three hours of sleep <laughs> everything is weird <laughs> well, yeah so now that we have our general overview of the circadian it's time to get into biology we're gonna get a little little technical but <laughs> I think it's fun. This is what I got really excited about when I was researching. Uh, so not the engineering of clocks. I didn't even get to ac- atomic clocks, which are which oh. are cool as well. But maybe at the end. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe we'll bring it up. Um, so the biology in humans, uh, the circadian rhythm is controlled by our hypothalamus, which is uh, a little brain area. We got some very important. That's brain the thing area. from Osmosis Jones that he tries to mess around with. You ever see that movie? A long time ago. Please explain. I remember so, being gross that movie. Uh, well, yes. Bill Murray does some <laughs> gross stuff in that movie. It's just like the pimple scene. Ugh. I don't remember. I think yeah. I blocked most yeah. of it out. It's just oh, a yeah. There's so many scenes. Memory. Anyway, Osmosis Jones. Great movie. Really uh, in that Jessica Rabbit style mer- merges like animation and live action. Right. Kind of. It, it, anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, is that, point is, is that he gets sick with this like disease, which is like personified in the animated portion of the movie that's in his body as this, like, dastardly mob villain type guy. <laughs> He's trying to be the best disease there is. And what he does is he, like, messes with people's hypothalamus and he causes them to, like, overheat and die. Like, they have, like, oh. a huge fever reaction. And they they sort of... Um, I guess anthropomorphize it as though he's like stealing something from the control center of the brain and then escaping to a new host and stuff like that. And that's what kills people. But uh, yeah, so that's what every time I hear hypothalamus, I think it was Moses Jones and I can't even remember the guy's name, but he's got some, his name is definitely, and I, this was something that went over my head as a kid. His name is definitely like a pun on the type of disease he's supposed to be um, or some sort of like, yeah, it's some sort of weaving in, of the name, oh, but I have to look it up. Yeah. Maybe it's we'll tell you at the start of next episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so hypothalamus, controlling things like temperature, controlling a lot of important... Uh, Regulatory functions. Exactly. Um, but it also, uh, this the hypothalamus connects the nervous system to the endocrine system. Endocrine being our hormone system. So like I said, the hormonal system is also linked to the day cycle. Uh, and so in the hypothalamus, we have a group of nerve cells uh, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, SCN. And we we each, each of us humans, myself, Davis, all of you, we each have two SCN. Uh, 
Each SCN, these, these groups of nerve cells, uh, are composed of 10,000 tightly interconnected neurons. Neurons just being brain nerves, nerve cells, right? So uh, we each have two, and each one is made of 10,000 neurons. So they're very densely packed little uh, sense spots. Sense bundles. Sense bundles in our <laughs> brains. <laughs> and the SCN are actually connected to the optic nerve, which, uh, so this allows them to respond to light and dark, right? So we're looking at sun, we're looking at absor or noting when light is happening and when it is not. Uh, and so this uses information from the retina, a thing in our eyes, uh, and the specific cells are called photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. So they detect the brightness of surroundings. You might have heard of like cones and rods, right? So we can detect colors with uh, colors with our cones and our rods. Colors with the cones, light and dark with rods. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then there's C also for cones, color. Ah. Yeah. And then there's also photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which are just the brightness. So it would be more similar to our rods. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they're probably simpler. They're probably more just like light. Like on or off switch, that binary, a little yeah. bit more so. Yeah. Um, and so when the, uh, and so when these photosensitive retinal ganglion cells detect some brightness, they will send information to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN, along the retinohypothalamic track. Your eyes start to perceive light in a very basic way. It sends information up to your brain, to a specific part of your brain, the SCN. When the SCN senses light in the morning, uh, they'll raise our temperature, uh, increase our heart rate, our blood pressure, and delay the release of hormones like melatonin. This is why people use those uh, daylight alarm clocks. Yeah. Just like, like a sun rising in your room. That absolutely would work on me. I need to sleep with a mask because as soon as the sun is up, I'm awake. Like the, I, the, the most relatable scene to me in Frozen <laughs> was in the in the like it's the very beginning and Anna's like the sun is up and so am I and I was like hey <laughs> that's me <laughs> so I get this my SEM well apparently that's sensitive. all of us because that's that's what it's trying to do it's true the sun's trying to wake us up yep uh so we're we are you know getting different body systems are kind of coming uh back online as it were uh and we're releasing or we're delaying hormonal release of stuff like melatonin that makes us want to go to sleep and the circadian rhythm may regulate up to 15% of our genes, which is wild to me. 15% mm -hmm. like is a lot. It's a lot of stuff going on in our bodies. Uh, and, and in the evening, when these SCN sense that the light is disappearing, they will switch our organs into low gear. This is a kind of uh, along the lines of why they say don't have like a heavy meal right before you go to sleep. Because mm, you digest as well. Yeah, because your organs, they're not going to be working at full capacity because you're supposed to be asleep and resting and, and your body has other stuff it's got to do when you're asleep. Uh, and it also reduces your body temperature and then sleep-induced hormones like melatonin are activated mm. in the evening. And so uh, getting into a bit more of the nitty-gritty of the, <laughs> the nitty-gritty of the, of the biology... So <laughs> if, if that wasn't technical enough for you, yeah. here we go. Let's dive deeper. <laughs> Buckle in, team. <laughs> okay. So in our cells, we have genes, right? We have genes. Denim genes. Thanks, Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have genes in our cells. And these genes are, the main function of them in the cells, for the most part, is they'll send out a portion of themselves into the, the rest of the cell from the nucleus, the little, like, the little home they live in in the cell. 
uh, they'll send out a portion of themselves that can get read by uh, machinery. They're trying to make proteins, people. Yes. Proteins. So, so they send this thing out, it gets read by machinery, and it it will create a protein. So this is where all the different proteins that we need for life, this is how they start. Protein, like little cellular machine. It's pretty neat. They are. Yep. They're like nanomachines. That's what nanomachines really would be. Oh. Ah, like, proteins. Yeah, proteins. Because proteins basically can manipulate like molecules and stuff in the body. And they make things happen. They do make things happen. Yeah. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of, two of the most important genes for the circadian rhythm processes are the period and the cryptochrome genes. Makes sense. We think like period, you think like photo period, amount of light in a day. So that all kind of connects. Cryptochrome, uh, we're back in... Uh, I was going to say something about chronobiology, but it's not really lining up. Never mind. Cryptochrome, just a cool word. Well, crypto, <laughs> I think crypto does have um, an etymology that comes from time. Um, right. And I can't quite, yeah, I cannot quite recall exactly what that is. And then I have no idea how to relate it to cryptocurrency, which is I'm sure what's running through everybody's mind right now. Well, At my, least it's running your mind. What my brain is doing is in Mortal Kombat 11, the bad guy is Kronos. And she no well, yeah, no that's the bad guys, from no that's Greek mythology that's, that, that's Greek mythology no she is she's Chronica and she's the keeper of time <laughs> oh my god Mortal Kombat reference <laughs> I don't make a lot of those that's, that's I don't actually. even know that Mortal Kombat reference yeah it's, it's a newer game I started playing <laughs> uh, but yeah so we have period and cryptochrome genes yes. most important so these genes code for proteins that build up in the cell's nucleus at night and then lessen during the day so at night um, the genes are a lot of the the proteins that these genes make are being produced and then in the daytime they stop being produced and they start being like used up in the cell and this whole process of being processed and then broken down during the day the whole cycle takes about 24 hours so it's ingrained this uh this cycle this circadian rhythm is ingrained in our cells in like the the function of our cells so these protein these genes period and cryptochrome they produce two proteins, clock, like a clock on the wall, and BMAL1. I don't know why one has a good name and one has a dumb it's protein It's because name. biochemistry has a really dumb naming nomenclature, <laughs> and it bugs the heck out of me every time I have to talk about it. So here we go, getting on my soapbox. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I didn't expect this. No, it, <laughs> it's more just like a joke. It's like... Because, like, as a chemist, like, there's all this standardization to nomenclature. Yeah. Basically, like, one of the huge parts of chemistry has been, like, how do we talk about this stuff so that we're all always talking about the same thing? Yeah. So, it's, like, internationally, these are the rules that we use mm-hmm. for naming stuff. So, everybody understands. But biochem has, like, a completely different approach to their nomenclature when it comes to protein naming and stuff like that and mutations and whatnot is that it is entirely at the whim of the discoverer. It's, some of them are pretty funny. Exactly. So for whoever <laughs> first discovers something gets to sort of identify what it's called, what the protein's going to be called. Because otherwise, there's no real way to create a protein nomenclature because protein's got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of amino acids all chained yeah. together. Uh, so there's no, like, easy way to describe that. But usually, so often biochems will, biochemists will either, they'll name it after themselves because that happens from time to time. Yep. Or they're going to name it after its function. But then there's all, like, so sometimes with mutations, well, if the mutation was seen first but they didn't know that that's the mutation they'll name it after what the mutation causes and then the normal gene where there's no mutation will be like the name minus because it's absent the mutation but 
what you're describing is not the normal behavior, it's the mutated behavior, and you're describing normal in relative in relation to the mutation. This is something that has always really bothered me. <laughs> it sounds it sounds very much like a uh, fiction and nonfiction, which really bugged me when I was younger because I was like, mm. fiction is fake and then nonfiction is not fake. And I was like, why don't we just do not real fake, and real not, and not real. real? Like why is it gonna be fake and not fake? But yeah, is it, always could it me. be potentially because like fiction kind of I would argue that fiction sort of predates like nonfiction, right? Or I don't know. There's probably some weird etymology there for sure. Maybe. Because yeah. I mean, myth is the way that we pass down stories and, and learn exactly. and stuff. Mm -hmm. But still, always bugged me. As soon as I found out, I was like, why do we got to be fake and not fake? Anyway. Okay. So we have, we have our, our genes, period, and cryptochrome producing proteins, clock, nice, and BMAL1. Not nice, but that's fine. Uh, clock and BMAL1. Because clock was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> clock two. Uh, so clock and BMAL1 bind together. They combine uh, and promote. Just like the Power Rangers yeah. or uh, Voltron. Uh, yeah. So these, uh, these, no. Sorry. Period and cryptochrome genes do not produce clock and BMAL. I misspoke. The cells are just producing clock and BMAL. This is important. So clock and BMAL will bind together and promote the expression of period and cryptochrome genes. So clock and BMAL form a little team and then they go to the genes and they go, hey, period cryptochrome genes, turn on. We want what you're gonna make. And then what do cryptochrome and period make in terms of their their proteins? They make per and cry. Per period cryptochrome cry. That's a nice simple, that's a nice direct one. Uh, and then per and cry bind together and prevent or stop clock and BMAL from working. So clock and BMAL uh, encourage expression and the production of per and cry, and then per and cry stop clock and BMAL. Are you with me? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, if clock and BMAL are like green light for period and cryptochrome to produce their proteins, then per and cry are like, no, it's like they were created, so they don't want any more of themselves. So they will stop the thing that's causing them to be made. So it's a negative feedback loop. Yeah. So yeah, you have a stimuli that's producing something. What that thing then produces is preventing the production of more of the initial, like more of the initial driver from the stimuli. Exactly. And closing the loop and stopping it and thereby starting the cycle over again. Exactly. Because then, then you essentially have no more signal going through the pathway. Then it sort of goes, okay, so let's start the pathway up again till it gets to a point where the buildup of signal stops the pathway. Exactly. And this, again, <laughs> really highlights one of those really tricky things about biochemistry is because you're trying to describe these cycles from a relative point. Yeah. And again, sort of saying, <laughs> well, this this influences this, which turns this off, which is going to influence this to turn this yeah. off. And it's just uh, everything affecting everything. And these pathways are often... This one's really clean, honestly, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, as it's things are described. It's fairly simple. As mm -hmm. when, once, you, once I got it, I was like, yes, got it. Yeah. Um, In biochemistry, you can, like... I've seen these oh, like maps yeah. and it's like, basically it's a flow chart of yeah. how proteins affect different, like uh, how stimuli affects proteins, affects different like stimulus later on and all yeah. these things. And they're insanely complex. Like you couldn't even interpret it by looking at it. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of times it's more an exercise in computation to put pathways together <laughs> like that. Fair. Um, but yeah. So we have, uh, so once, once per and cry are produced, then they basically stop the production of per and cry. Yeah. So, they're made, they don't want no more of themselves. Uh, but then throughout the day, uh, these per and cry proteins will gradually break down 
in that roughly 24-hour cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once purr and cry break down, then clock and beam out, which are just being produced by our cells, then they go, hey, there's nothing stopping us anymore. You know, the big bully that was sitting on us disappeared. They got degraded. So then they jump back into the uh, and activate period and cryptochrome genes, which starts producing purr and cry again. This is why I call proteins like nanomachines or little machines because they do work in the body, right? So these proteins are affected by molecules that are being produced that drive a process in the body. And this is happening for all of the biological processes on Earth, like yes. within a cell. All of this, uh, this circadian rhythm stuff, was uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks way back. They, they had some understanding of circadian rhythms. But, uh, and then in the 1700s, there was a French scientist, Demerian, who described daily leaf movements of a plant. Even when the plant was indoors and not exposed to sunlight, the leaves were still moving to try to catch some sunlight. Is, who was the one? He wasn't the one that, like, cut a plant. And then he put a piece of, like, gelatin in it, and he stuck the plant back together, and then he showed that the plant still moved towards the sun, and so he was trying to describe, like, how plants have their photoelectric movement, like, they uh, are affected by light as a input or whatever. Can't I don't you? know. I always remember that from, like, one of my biology textbooks. Also, just because it had a really funny, like, cartoonish picture of, like, piece of grass, piece of grass cut, piece of grass <laughs> with a rock in between, yeah. not doing anything, piece of grass with, like, a perfect little gelatin cube. No. <laughs> Those biology diagrams are sometimes amazing. Mm. Oh, yes. Um, but yeah, so we have Demarian who uh, saw this and then was like, the findings suggested that the movements represented something more than a simple response to the sun and were controlled by an internal clock. Because mm. basically you took the sun away yeah. and the plant's still doing this motion. Yeah. Right? Um, and then the term circadian rhythm was developed in the 1950s by Franz Halberg. And circadian means, uh, if you can break it down into its, its roots, Latin roots, circa and diem. And circa diem means about a day, approximately a day. I love how the M changes to an N in this translation, because it is super close, right? It's yeah. almost like to the letter the same, yeah. except for the E and the M and A and N in the one. And I just, it makes me think of like somebody just saying circa diem with like an accent, like some like Brooklyn guy. It's like circa diem. I don't yeah. know. That was really, that wasn't quite what no, I was going for. <laughs> but I mean, we see that a lot with uh, like different First Nations words, mm. right? And the way that things were named. And then the First Nations people were like, no, that's not actually. Yeah. No, that was just our word for river. Yeah. <laughs> now all the rivers in this country are named that river, river, essentially. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So we have circadian developed around the 1950s. And initial studies, uh, there were initial studies on fruit flies done by Colin Pittendre, D-R-I-G-H, Dr. Uh, and on humans by Jürgen Ashoff. And then that developed into chronobiology, that really cool term, of the study of mechanisms underlying chronomes, or structures in time, found in organisms, populations, and the environment. Or a description I liked a little better was the study of biological rhythms, oscillating chains of events which occur in regular temporal sequence and persist in the absence of environmental impact. So again, absence of environmental impact, you can take us and put us in a dark room and our, our cells will still be doing this that, that purr, that cry, that clock, that beat mouth whole cycle thing, uh, which that whole thing is that oscillating chain of events that is occurring in a regular temporal sequence about 24 hours. Huh. Uh, and these, these sequences can be daily, like our circadian rhythm, but there's also like monthly, yearly, et cetera, type cycles mm -hmm. that the human body exists in. Like if you think of like reproductive and mating cycles, yeah. right? Those are cycles developed or determined by the body and those ones are a little more influenced depending on the species by external factors. 
But if you think of like the human female reproductive mm-hmm. system, you're on about a month cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the uh, genetics, the, uh, a good term, I, or, uh, a nice parable I found to help me understand chronobiology and chronomes was genetics led to genomics, which is the mapping of genomes. Chronobiology led to chronomics, the mapping of chronomes that were found to be near matches of environmental chronomes near and far. So chronomes kind of like genomes, they're like the sequence, the structure of the thing that's studying them, right? The chronobiology. Hmm. Yeah. And this all, all of this around the 50s developed um, around the same time that sleep research was starting to be developed, which was uh, done by Nathaniel Kleitman, who described the sleep stages initially. But Hmm. it was separate from that. But as we can, as we know now, we all think circadian rhythm ties very much into our sleep cycles. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, there's a lot of there's a lot of science that studies sort of like the impact of different sleep cycles and yeah. disruptions to you know the these patterns and how they affect humans. One of the ones that I was particularly interested in in getting ready for this was shift work. So I used yeah. to work rotating shift work, which um, typically you call it like A, B, and C shift. So you your A shift, which is your daytime shift, usually starts at about seven a.m. and it'll go to three p.m. And then you have your B shift, which is the afternoon, which will go from 3 to 11. And then you have your C shift, which is overnight, and it'll go from 11 to 7 a.m. And obviously, everybody hates C shift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, and that, and there's a lot to suggest that rotating is really bad for you. They say that rotating, no matter what, it's really bad for your body. It, yeah. like, takes years off your life. Um, they say there's a way to do it. You're supposed to do it alphabetically. Go to A from A to B to C so that your clock is constantly shifting forward. Yeah. Um, and even the science suggests that like there's some belief, an anecdotal belief, especially among shift workers, that permanent nights is better than rotating. Yeah. Which like from my experience, permanent nights still suck, <laughs> but it's a little bit easier than rotating your sleep schedule all the time. Well, it's the same with what they say uh, around don't stay up later and wake up later on the weekends. Yeah. Right? Like if you mm-hmm. can keep a consistent sleep schedule, you'll feel a lot better than if you spend two days going to bed later and waking up later and then having to like drag yourself into and out of bed on Monday. <laughs> yeah, I don't follow that piece of advice <laughs> as much as I try. But yeah, so the but there's been all these studies to show that like it basically, even if in permanent C-shift, it's impossible to completely adjust to the night shift. And it has all of these impacts on like the human organism. And even to the point where day shift, because of the way the hour gets structured, you're waking up, you know, if you have a commute, you're waking up at like four or five in the morning. Yeah. You are also waking up at the lowest point in your circadian oh, rhythm. Yeah, and you're forcing yourself into high gear. You're driving so there's more accidents. Your productivity at work is lower. And then same thing for the C-shift employees is your productivity is much lower because you're, you know, you're tired the whole time. It's yeah. brutal. Yeah, and that uh, that really highlights some of the problems with messing with our circadian rhythm, which uh, it just it causes so it causes so many problems in uh, in the organism, like the synchrony of an organism with both its external and internal environments is critical to the organism's well being and survival. A lack of synchrony between the organism and the external environment may lead to the individual's immediate demise. Which is a quote I found. Immediate demise. (laughs) Which I just thought was... Fancy bio-speak for dead. Yeah, really fast. (laughs) (laughs) I just loved it because it was so... In in the express lane, you could lead to the individual's (laughs) departure into the express lane to death. Wow. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And then you hit a tanker truck. I should, yeah, and burst into a ball of flame. Uh, But so I thought this was a really dramatic way to put it. And then it had an example. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Imagine you have a nocturnal rodent, right? If they get out of, uh, if they're desynchronized 
with the regular clock that they're on, and all of a sudden they wander out in mid-daylight, they're going to get picked up by a bird, right? Like a, a predatory daytime bird, mm. because they're not, like the system, the environment is so different that they're, their immediate demise <laughs> is, is it's going to happen. And it's going to happen fast because they're uh, trying to function within a system that they don't normally function in with the external cues that are so different from what they're used to. Uh, and going back to what I was saying before about humans, if you're kept in the dark, then the rhythm doesn't impact it. It's not impacted very much, but it's that altered light. It's not the total absence of light. It's if you see too much or too little light or you receive light at the wrong time of day. This is why their phone keeps you up in the evening because uh, it can confuse and disrupt your rhythm. It get, it's giving those cells in your eyeballs are still detecting certain types of light and then they're telling your brain, your SCN, which is telling everything else, it's turning processes on that shouldn't be and it's not turning things off when they should be turned off. So this impacts people, like David said, who work at night, you have your shift workers, uh, or people with sleep disorders, and even uh, some people who have visual impairments, if their visual impairment prevents light from reaching the ganglion cells. Mm. So there's some, yeah, there's there's some vision impairments where it's more like the pathways into the brain as opposed yeah. to the, the cells themselves. But if there's something that impacts those cells, then it can throw off your whole circadian rhythm which is wild. Mm -hmm. uh, and disruptions to this natural order, to your natural rhythm, have been linked to diabetes, obesity, depression, and dementia. And I've heard that one a ton. Mm -hmm. Dementia, uh, like poor sleep when you're younger can really impact your brain health in, in your later life. In addition to impairing your ability to think and uh, you have altered hormonal function, which is also what can lead to obesity and stuff, right? There's mm -hmm. a, a big link between hormones and, and obesity. Um, and then gastrointestinal complaints as well, which again is all tied into all of the things. Yeah. And this is all right. Cause it's like when you're shifting your sleep schedule like this, it's putting stress on your body. So it's sometimes not the stress that we like always think about like work stress or like physical stress of like doing a manual task, yeah. but like all of these things create stressors in the body, mm -hmm. which your body either has to like repair the damage from and over time will really build up and create, you know, adverse effects. Absolutely. And uh, a really good quote that I found kind of explaining how humans mess with this and why it's bad uh, is from the National Institute of Health in the U.S., in particular, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. There's a paper called Overview of Circadian Rhythms. Helpful. And so this quote, most animals are content to obey their SCN and let it orchestrate the expression of a multitude of circadian rhythms. Humans, however, have a mind of their own and often use this mind to disobey their internal clock. For example, with an increasing tendency toward 24-hour availability for business. <laughs> the potential consequences of such an increasingly 24-hour on-call lifestyle are unknown at this point, but the evidence does not bode well, end quote. Mm -hmm. And that, like, I think that brings it back really, yeah. really nicely to the whole DST question yeah. and this whole, like, the relation of circadian rhythm and the way that our biology over thousands and thousands and thousands of years has had to be tuned to a current societal context that's only really existed for the last, like, 200 years. Yeah. And it's quite fascinating. Um, I think I, I, one of the things I was looking at for when I was looking at history of timekeeping was like, I was interested in, you know, indigenous ways of timekeeping, mm -hmm. right. And a lot of for the indigenous peoples of North America, a lot less significance on like segments of time during the day. And it's more about things hap like more about just those, those overall cycles and the observation of those types of cycles. But I came across a quote that was really funny. 
about daylight savings time where it was some American uh, chief and he said something to the effect of when uh, when a colonist tried to tell him about daylight savings time was only a white man would think that you could cut a blanket in half, attach the bottom of the blanket to the top of the blanket, sew it back together and think you had a longer blanket. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Because it's true, right? You're just yeah. shifting the time. But, and even... Um, there's often this, the urban legend that daylight savings time is related to farmers, right? That it was to create. Oh, I never heard that one. Okay. So that's, that's... I, I heard it purely the indoor Ben Franklin candle electricity one. Really? Yeah. I had always heard that it was related to the farmer needing more daytime, like uh, creating more daytime for the farmer to do his work. But and... farmers get up in the morning really early. And this is, and this is exactly it. So it's interesting. The myth comes from this, but what, but actually farmers famously hated DST yeah. and the, and the inception of it because the rooster crows when the sun comes up. Yeah. So what does it matter what your clock says? <laughs> if the work starts when the sun comes up, it doesn't matter if it's seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And it's, so this is, again, I think it really highlights this interesting thing of we are now living our lives between like, well, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. are your like the daylight waking hours. But again, you live in a you know you live in a country like Canada. That's not true in all parts yeah. of Canada. It's <laughs> Most parts dr- of Canada, it's drastically untrue in in really far north regions yeah. or really far south regions of the world. And but we're forcing ourselves into this neatly contained box of hours. That's not how that not doesn't really reflect biology and how like the sun move the earth moves around the sun yeah yeah just because we think we have a lot of control over things we don't have control over our circadian mm-hmm. rhythm and only as yeah. so much as to mess it up it seems yeah and that's what that was my kind of unfortunate my takeaway from this topic was like <laughs> as i was recently was like man we are such slaves to this like the capitalistic uh, capitalism 24 hour like yeah. eight hours of leisure eight hours of rest eight hours of work and it's just Who like it's eight hours of leisure we'll see and this is again this is unrelated <laughs> but there's a whole thing right because that's the whole thing right you are expected to be at work for eight hours but yeah. you are not compensate but and then it, but you need to you know you need to travel to and from and you, you look need to get presentable re- yeah you need to get ready <laughs> and and so all of that time comes out of your leisure or your sleep time, yeah. but it cannot come out of the eight hours that is designated for work. And I mean, think of how long it took for people, you know, in factories and stuff like that to get, you know, to create the social um, momentum to create the eight hour work day yeah. and the seven and the five hour work, the five day work week. And it's sort of interesting because there's this growing movement now around the four day work week. Sounds and, so nice. Oh, absolutely. I like, I'm a big proponent of it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's this whole thing. And even one of the big tenets of like early socialism too, is that, um, <laughs> they, you that early socialism, early socialism, <laughs> well, socialism in general, right. Is that it's that you're striving for the creation of permanent unemployment because human labor should not be required mm. for life essentially like in that same way. So it's very interesting, but I, I, that was my, yeah, my like, <laughs> my, yeah, my commie sensibilities, but it just made me, it, it got me very frustrated because it was like, oh man, like, we should we should live this life like more in tune with just like well in the winter time the day is shorter why are we working so hard <laughs> and but we don't we're like we're told like it doesn't matter if the sun's not up yeah. it's like those widgets have got to get made baby yeah we are automatons yeah mm-hmm. but so all that to say uh calgary and maybe other parts of alberta mm. would be my guess are voting on to keep to switch to permanent daylight savings time would yeah. personally personal opinion uh i would hate I would hate to have the sun rise later in the winter. That would be awful. I agree. Um, yeah. 
And like to stay to stay lighter in the summer, especially in a place like Calgary, like it's currently light until like eleven thirty in Ju- in like June and July. You're like I don't need it to be light this late. It's actually hard to go to sleep. They say like <laughs> permanent DST pushes the expression of our time relative to the actual time zone we're in like 15 degrees like further than it should be all of the time and so even when we're in dst we're like and even they say like where we are relative like mst is not really perfect anyway like Mm -hmm. the cities like calgary and edmonton are almost on the exact same longitudinal line um but where we are is still not like the right orientation for mst like we're almost like and again it's just like at a certain point you're in a different you're like yeah, you might be a half hour and there are a bunch of weird like half hour and 40, there's even 45 minute yeah. time zones and stuff. But to go to permanent DST would push us even further off of that for the hardest part of the year. Yeah. And then talking to, imagine talking to someone in a in a different province. Mm-hmm. Like if you're talking to someone in Ontario and we've switched to permanent DST and they're still on alternating, then like. You're three hours apart, I think, at the biggest interval, right? Yeah, because it's or, two hours right now. It's yeah. It's like two hours actually. So would they, yeah, because what would happen when they fall back, we would stay the same. So yeah, it would so be three, three hours. hours. Yeah. <laughs> so it would just like mess up so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm a big proponent of permanent MST. I think yeah. the clock switching is dumb. I think that, yeah. I think we should do away with it. it it's it's so ridiculous to me when I started, because when this referendum came up, I was like, I don't really know a lot about daylight savings time. So I started looking into it and came across an article where it was like, here's why scientists think permanent daylight savings time was bad. And I read it and I was like, why how did it even get on the vote because like how did permanent dst get on the vote and not permanent standard time without getting too political about it i do really think it's that they recognize that there and there was there's a lot of interest in like we want to have a discussion about dst mm-hmm. and then a complete bungling of how to set the question up. <laughs> and again one of the things that really frustrates me about it is that like and there might be who knows there might be some business interest towards permanent dst versus permanent mst i, I don't think it really doesn't really seem to make any sense but uh you know, it's just, there are other questions on that same referendum where it's like one of them is like a pick three out of a list of 12 people or whatever. Um, So you've already sort of shown that like you can ask more than a binary question. You've you've put that amount of faith in the populace to ask this question. So you could have had the question be, do you want status quo? Do you want permanent DST? Do you want permanent MST? And gotten an actual answer on what everybody in the province, what their viewpoint is rather than, well, I don't want the clocks to switch, but I know I might feel permanent DST is a bad idea. So I have to vote no on this question. And then someone else is going to say, well, see, everybody likes switching the clocks. And it's like, well, that's not really (laughs) how you structured the question. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just say, the way you phrase questions is very important. Yeah, you get into a whole thing about survey design. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophy of surveys. Yeah. Everybody um, loves doing surveys, right? <laughs> you want your survey ways. to be like 150 questions long? Every time. Yeah, absolutely. I want to sit down and for them to be like, this is going to take you 90 minutes. Yeah. I'm like, amazing. I had nothing else to yeah, do. Here's a flimsy clip- clipboard and a golf pencil. <laughs> <laughs> Stack of 60 sheets of paper. <laughs> Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, with all of our history and our biology and our, our I mean, that's most of what it was. Uh, our society stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our pursuit of ever better timekeeping methods. Yeah. Now we're using atoms. All um, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Davis. No, it's just just very quickly because otherwise tell us about have to, the, the atomic <laughs> clock. So the true the world atomic clock is uh it's basically the average of four hundred atomic clocks around the world. Now timekeeping becomes very important for things like GPS and things where relativity starts to play an effect because if you've got things out of position even a tiny bit, you're telling someone they're on a road and really they're like two miles into the ocean. Um, 
<laughs> that really should have been described the other way around, yeah. but whatever. Um, <laughs> and so the atomic clock, the way it works is it's it's based off of the same, you've probably heard of like the quartz clock. So quartz is a material yes. that's piezoelectric and also like puts out a certain number of frequencies. So if you apply an electric current to a uh, piezoelectric material, it will release like a physical force. And if you apply a physical force to a piezoelectric material, it'll release an electric current. Oh. Super, super, super neat. So yeah. um, material. Piezoelectrics are all over the place. Um, hybrid vehicles are often called, the engines usually have piezoelectric in the name oh. because that's how they work. The okay. recharging, yeah. right? So even your normal car, your alternator will recharge your battery like when you brake and stuff. And it's based off of these piezoelectric materials that generate, so you're putting force into them and then they're generating generating an electrical current and you're charging something up even like your bic lighter like your little like flick lighter the stone is a piezoelectric like the flint that's yeah. what it is that's why it's releasing a spark because you are stressing it you are running another material over it putting physical force in and it is releasing electrical current so anyway that's piezoelectrics but that's like <laughs> so we started using quartz for clocks because it was really accurate because you know the exact number of oscillations and quartz is just SiO2, much like glass. It's just crystallized uh, rather than amorphous with, like glass. Um, and so you use it to drive the mechanism of a clock. But even quartz isn't perfect and you start to lose like these billionths of a second on every cycle. So then you pair it with an atom where you know the spin of an atom all atoms are going to be the same. So you don't have to deal with like manufacturing defects or right. anything like that. And so you pick the cesium atom and for whatever reason, I think just the, the abundance of it, our understanding of its measurement, it's using a few other things as well. Uh, and you know that if you get it to, if you put an electric current, like the electric current from a piece of quartz into the cesium atom, you can get the spin orientation to jump a quantum level. So you, and then come back down and that'll happen on like a specific frequency. Ah. And so you're measuring that. And so every time that, so you're measuring every time that this comes up and down based on how many inputs you're getting from the quartz. And as the quartz starts to lose its energy or whatever and not put out as consistently, then you have another detector that detects, okay, well now I'm not seeing as many spin changes or these energy gaps from the cesium atom. So I need to put a little bit more electricity into the quartz clock and keep it going. So now they have these, so it keeps this, so every time you're like losing a second on your clock, basically it's saying, no, not so fast. <laughs> Give me that second back, baby. So they're saying that if, uh, with the level of um, accuracy that atomic clocks have now, that if they had started an atomic clock at the Big Bang, it would only be missing like a second. Wow. Yeah, after billions and billions and billions of years of running. So there you go. Pretty impressive. Yeah, the, the, ultimate, the ultimate capper, yeah. the coolest clock out there. The atomic clock. Very different from your car clock, which mm -hmm. I have to change every couple months. Yeah. Because it slowly yeah, speeds exactly. up and I go, I have five extra minutes. And then yeah. I check and I go, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently there's like a solar clock too, which is a satellite that is pointed at the earth basically. And it's actually measuring. And true time is like true the, abs time. the absolute relative time that everything is based off of for things on earth is based off of a combination of the, the world atomic clock and this like solar time. Cool. Yeah. No, so there you go. There you go. Now you know a little more about time and stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting. I don't know. It's just very fascinating to me. Like you work, we've worked so hard to tell time, which is completely relative anyway, but it's so important to have increasingly accurate ways of telling time. Otherwise all these, like all of these systems and all of these, like uh, even like complex computer systems all just start to like fall apart. 
and also the understanding of we can we can put whatever constraints we want on time, mm-hmm. but they don't they they don't really matter to what is really controlling mm-hmm. us in terms of time, which is this circadian yeah. rhythm and our biology yeah. that is built on our entire evolutionary history of the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. we, I, talked, I, we talked a lot of different stuff in there. Yeah. I liked I liked researching this topic, actually. I, I thought it was very interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, well, that takes us through. Uh, so, I mean, this will come out after the election, so I can't really say, like, get out and vote if you're in yeah. Calgary. Um, <laughs> but we will see. We will see what the referendum results have been. Yes. Maybe we'll be able to touch on that in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, anything you want to add, Sarah? No, I think we I think we covered it. Uh, we do not have an Instagram yet, uh, right? But you can that again, and the volcano song coming yeah. to a theater near you. Yeah, I will continue to bug Davis <laughs> with the volcano song, so get ready to continue hearing about it. Um, but if you do want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow Third Sock from the Sun. Follow me, and I always post when we release. Uh, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at Temporary Expert, just one expert, to send us feedback and maybe topics you'd like us to cover. And if you are liking the show, please consider consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to, because those reviews and those stars and all that good stuff help us to hack the algorithms and mm-hmm. find more listeners. And also because on the metrics, I like to go on Spotify and see what our followers are listening to. No, oh. I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. You can. It's funny, but that's not really. I just I want to know what more of you are up to <laughs> in a non creepy way. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we've been your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 